Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast. Some of you know I read a lot. Well, today I'm speaking with an author who wrote one of the, my favorite books that I read during this past pandemic year. And I think you're going to be shocked to learn how women have been forgotten, recast, or even written out of Christian history. And today's author is reclaiming those women. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. Today we're talking with Beth Allison Barr, who's the author of the book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And I love the title because it reminds us that biblical womanhood, this idea that many of us have learned to be biblical, isn't biblical at all. And it's not beneficial either. Now, who is Beth? So glad you're asking. Beth is a professor of history and associate dean of the graduate school at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, right here in my backyard. She specializes in medieval history, women's history, and church history. She is the president of the Conference of Faith and History and has written for Christianity Today, the Washington Post, and the Religion News Service, and is a regular contrib- contributor to the Anxious Bench the popular Pathos website on Christian history. Well, welcome, Beth Barr, to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast. We're so glad to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. Okay, so we're going to dive right in because I've got so many questions because I want everybody to hear everything you have to say and whatever we can't get in uh, to this podcast, I want them to go out and buy your book so they can learn it all, but... (laughs) I want to start a little bit with your story. Um, You start in the book and you share a little bit about your story that you grew up Southern Baptist. You married a youth pastor who served in the Baptist church. And then you share this traumatic story of of your husband being fired and the fallout for that, um, firing on you and him, your family. And I thought it would be helpful for our audience to get anchored in that story. Can you share with us a little bit about what happened? Sure. So indeed, my husband and I got married 10 days before we both moved um, off to North Carolina to start grad school for me, a PhD program at Chapel Hill, and he started at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. So from the very beginning, our his ministry and my academia have always been intertwined. They've always been part of what we have done together in our life. Um, and as our life progressed, we both began to have concerns, growing concerns about the way that women are treated in the evangelical world and the theological understanding that women are supposed to be under the authority of, of men. And so I talk about this in the book. I have several, you know, where I kind of show our discomfort with this growing. Mine first, 
and my husband's kind of coming alongside with it. Um, and it kind of all came to a head in 2016, which was such a traumatic year for so many people. Sure was. <laughs> um, but it came to a head in the fall of 2016 where we finally made a decision. And there was a lot of reasons for this. Um, and I talk about some of them in the book. But we finally decided to, uh, to push the church that we were in on the, on the question of women in leadership. And the question we asked was actually extremely small. It was very benign. We simply asked for a woman to be able to co-teach the um, high school Sunday school class with a man. And that question, us asking that question and being denied and our decision to that, that we couldn't live with that. And so we decided to try to reach out to the leadership um, at the church and ask them to reconsider. And us doing that led to him being pretty um, dramatically fired three weeks later. It was a pretty traumatic experience for all of us. It was made even more um, traumatic because it was they, they forced us to stay quiet about it. It was right. all a very small group. They tightly controlled it and they controlled the narrative. And in fact, my husband's um, Although we did, originally we were offered not very much at all in a severance package. And then later I, we had some friends who got us a larger severance package. But it was doled out to us over a period of several months. And it was told to us that in order for us to continue getting that, it was contingent on our good behavior. So we were essentially told we couldn't talk. Right. That's about what, what good happened. behavior meant was not telling the truth about why you were That's fired. That's exactly right. right. That's exactly right, which made the whole thing even more traumatic because um, what people, I'm sure what people were thinking happened, what people, I mean, there were all sorts of things. And so you have also in this church that we were still in, and these were our friends. We had been here for a very long time. Um, we, both of our children had been born while we were in ministry at this church, and my son's now 16. So that, you know, it, it was a very long time. So for us to, um, all of a sudden, there were our friends, the people, the, everyone started treating us differently. It was, you know, the, the experience we now had at church, everything was hard in our mm. life and we couldn't tell anyone why. And so it, um, but it still kind of took me, I think the trauma was so much, it still, it took me a few months to, for it to kind of settle and me to realize that this had to change and not just our personal circumstances, but the larger issue, because I knew as a historian, I knew why our pastors at this church said women couldn't preach, teach, or lead. And I also knew that the reasons they said that were not biblical. They thought they were, but I knew they weren't um, because of my historical, my understanding of history. And so I came to this moment. And in fact, um, the making a biblical womanhood opens with, I call it sort of the moment I broke, the moment I realized I couldn't not tell people what I knew. And I, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do at that point, but I knew this had to change because um, complementarianism, these rigid gender roles that say that women are under, are divinely ordained to be under male leadership, that this idea was not only not Christian, 
but it was harmful to women and men. Yeah. And it was damaging the witness of the church. I love that because so, I do want to say it yeah. is harmful to not just women. It is also harmful to men and it is damaging yeah. to the witness of the church. And I would even say it defaces the image of God. I mean, I think it's that big. Right. So, yes, no, I, I agree with you, especially it's very modern iteration of it yes. um, that gets it into the Trinity. Yes. So let me just say, um, a lot of people who are listening to this podcast have grown up in the evangelical world or are still in evangelical faith communities. And those faith communities are teaching this concept of biblical womanhood, biblical manhood. And most of the people sitting in the pew are not aware that that teaching is being passed over to them. Many times that kind of uh, teaching is done through nuances or um, implicitly, you know. So I don't even think they know that that teaching exists in their church, and I don't even think they know how to pick up on it sometimes. So would you just share with our audience, what do you mean when you say biblical womanhood? Right. No, that's a great question. And it's also one of the reasons why we don't notice it is because this concept of biblical womanhood and um, even biblical manhood was based upon cultural ideals. It was something that was already in our culture. And so people, when, when it began to be taught that it was actually part of Christianity, it was sort of a natural move for people who were already living within this culture of gender, gender roles, of ascribed gender roles. So essentially what biblical womanhood is, it is this idea that God has divinely ordained women to be under the spiritual leadership of their husbands within the home and of male pastors, elders um, within the church. And that women's roles, while they certainly may work outside the home, they have actually been um, designed by God to primarily to focus on family and children. And so a woman's best calling is to her household and to the work of her family. And anything else that she does should always be considered secondary to her husband's career um, and to her husband's leadership. Um, so it creates this, this two-tier system um, where women and men spiritually are, are equal before God, but in most other ways, women have to adhere and stay underneath the authority of men. So this has become um, this, it, when we talk about biblical manhood and womanhood in churches, it's always with this idea of female subordination and masculine authority. Great. I always tell people it means women are less than. Nobody's saying it that <laughs> yes. way, but we are secondary, right? We're the less that's than. Exactly. Yep. That's exactly what it really is. People fight that and say it's not true. Um, and that's because theologically, it isn't true. Theologically, women and men are spiritually equal before God, but this um, biblical womanhood that has been read back into the biblical text then creates this two-tier system that in actuality is the practice of the church. Yeah, and one thing I think I didn't realize um, having all my evangelical training is when we talk about this idea that and maybe we'll get into that later, but this idea that, you know, womanhood has to do with being married and having children, you know, 
51 percent of, of of American women today do not ha- do not live with a significant male in their life. So for the first time in history, we have more women without a male than women with a male in their life, and so we have a lot of single women, right? And then we have between 70 to 83 percent of women who work outside of the home with children who have children under the age of 18. And we're also right. not even addressing the fact that when we say women who work, who, whose main um, function is in the home and to have children, we're not talking about women who can't have children, or we're not really talking about times in history where like the 1950s, where that was true of white women, but it wasn't a theology exactly. we had for black women. Um, exactly. And I work in South Sudan with my husband, and is, that theology doesn't work for women there either. Everybody works just to eat for the day, you know, so this whole idea right. is not a universal truth. No. It's really a white, Western, wealthy person's theology, this biblical womanhood. That's exactly right. It is. Um, You know, it explodes. If you just look outside of the U.S. and outside of Western Europe, uh, this notion of biblical womanhood completely falls apart uh, because it is. It is a class-based system that only works among privileged, really white European folks. That's exactly right. And most people in the churches don't realize that. They, they've been told it's truth, right? It's the plain and simple truth. It's God's design. And you and I would agree that, no, it's not God's design. It's actually patriarchy <laughs> in disguise, right? And as you said, right. patriarchy is present in the culture. It was also present in biblical times. I love how Carolyn Custis James um, says it. She says, patriarchy is the background of the Bible, but it's not the yeah. message of the Bible. And so so I I think what people don't realize, particularly when we hear pastors teaching from Paul's words from Ephesians or Colossians, and they talk about these household codes, you know, wives submit to your husbands, husband, love your wives, all those, these household codes, they, they make it sound like this is God set apart holy standard for Christian homes. When in truth, Paul is actually working off the Roman culture's structure of the home. And he's just, well, I I love how you say it. You say he's actually offering a resistant narrative to that patriarchal Roman worldview. So why do you say that? Why? I mean, I love that. So we've heard that these are the ideals, you know, and and you say, no, 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 actually Paul's being subversive. Tell us why or how you think Paul's being subversive here. Yes, and in fact, I'll have to put a caveat here that it's not just me saying this, that there are so many scholars who understand the history of the Roman world and understand these texts. And when they look at them, they, this, what we see is that um, the household codes are not the same as the Roman world. Um, you know, patriarchy was really was. It was background noise to the Romans. The household codes were, you know, this structure that was so familiar to them that the husbands had complete authority of life and death over the women and children that lived within their households. It was really a startling. If we think about what the how, what it really meant in the first century, um, it's a much more aggressive, or at least theoretically, it's a much more aggressive patriarchy. And what we see going on in the household codes, and I think a really good place you can see this too is I didn't talk about uh, First Peter in my book, 
Uh, Lucy Pepiot does a really great job with mm-hmm. First Peter. But the household codes in First Peter, that one's often been seen as one of the most um, difficult ones to understand because it calls women the weaker sex. Um, it also talks about women dressing, and it also talks about you know Abraham and Sarah, and that Sarah called Abraham Lord. But if you put it in the context of what of what this book is doing, if you look in the very beginning, um, it says, "Look, you know, Christians, we have to we have to fit in to this pagan world around us. We can't make them question us. We can't sort of upset what's going on there. But at the same time, we still have to live as Christians. And this is exactly what we see going on in the Pauline text. Is Paul is saying, "Look." And Peter, too, saying, look, we have to fit in with the Roman world. These are the laws governing us, but we also have to act like Christians. And so if you look at what the household codes are actually doing, they are not telling women that they owe this, that you know their husbands have life and death power over them. Um, in Ephesians 5, when Paul says, wives, submit to your husband, in the verse right before that, he says, okay, everyone, remember, you are all called to submit to each mm-hmm. other in the Lord. And then he says, wives, submit to your husband. But then he immediately follows that up with husbands. Instead of you have power of life and death over your wives, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And remember, in 521, you are to submit to your wife just as she submits to you. I mean, this is a complete rewriting. Yeah, their minds would have been blown just hearing that, right? Like, wait, I have to love my wife? Whoa. (laughs) It would have been dramatic. I mean, the first century audience receiving this would have been astounded. Right. Because it, it was so radically different from what their world was telling them these relationships between women and men look like. That's awesome. And what I have learned is that the you know even the idea where where Paul asked women to submit it what used to be obey like submit is a choice. Obey is not, right? And so there's a choice he's even giving women here which they never had a choice before. And right. then we have Paul asking the man to do something the man's never been required to do. Actually, the pressure is on the man in these in these texts. Yeah, it is. It, he has to. That's he actually loses power, and the vulnerable people in the text gain power. Is what I see. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you can see that in First Peter again because he reminds the husband. He says, "Your wife is a co-heir with you." I mean, this language of um, you know that. I mean, and this. This idea of a co-heir carries with it this legal language that she inherits everything just like you do, um, which was not the case. I mean, this was uh, women were so disadvantaged, Um, and so I I think this is just this would have been dramatic. We miss how revolutionary this was to the first century world. I love that, and I would really recommend to those of you listening to get this book. The Making of Biblical Womanhood, because you're going to love some of the information there about how um, how Beth treats these passages that Paul talks about. I think it's going to like flip your head and go poo like, like the first century. So <laughs> you say in your book that women's stories have been covered up, neglected, or retold or recast um, and as less significant than women really were. So can you give us an example, and you do, you give multiple examples in your book, but can you give us one example of how a woman's story in scripture has been recasted? Yes, um, this is, this is so easy to find. One of the examples I give in my book um, is the story of Junia. 
and Junia is in Romans 16. She's there with Phoebe. Phoebe's another woman who's been recast. Um, but Junia is probably the most well-known because it's the most egregious. And for most of Christian history, Junia's name was not contested. Um, Junia was outstanding among the apostles, which means she was recognized as a female leader in the early church. This would have not been surprising to medieval people because medieval people recognized Mary Magdalene as an apostle. They called her the apostle to the apostles. So this idea of a woman being apostle wasn't something that was strange or disconcerting uh, to most folk throughout Christian history. With the coming of the Reformation, though, it did begin to upset some of the male leaders and reformers, including Martin Luther, um, who actually changed the name to Junius in his um, in, in his biblical translation. He was still mostly an outlier, though. Even John Calvin accepted Junia was a female apostle. And it's really not until the 19th and the 20th century where we begin to see, and it's, it's not, it's um, at the same time that we actually see the suffrage movement picking up. So, in fact, Beverly Gaventa said something very interesting once. She said if somebody went back and looked and tried to match when Junia's name began to be translated as Junius, it probably – it certainly could match with the suffrage movement taking off at the end of the of the 19th century wow. and into the early 20th. Um, I haven't gone to match to look at that specifically yet, but I bet she's right. Uh, because that's, that is around the time period when this happens. And what we see begin to happen is Junia begins to be translated as Junius. And the reasoning for this is because it is presumed that if it is Junia, if it is a woman, then that means that women can be apostles. And since women can't be apostles, it has to be Junius. And that's the logic right. behind it. So they and change it to a male to name. Translated. They changed it to a male name. Um, some Bibles still do this today. In fact, the ESV um, translate, I think, I haven't, the most recent version, I'm not, I think it still does this, but it has Junius, and then there's a footnote that says some translate as Junia. And the reality is, is that it is Junia and footnote, some people very late in Christian history begin to try to translate it as Junia. Beautiful. That would be the appropriate footnote to add. So that's just one of many examples you give in your book. And um, I, I want to say that it's not just women in scripture we've minimized or neglected. And you do a great job in your book of pointing out a long history of Christian women who were preachers and church planners and translators. Right. And uh, I, I mean, a long history of which I have to be honest, I went to, I have two seminary degrees and I have never learned of their history. I've learned of the history of my church <laughs> brothers, right? Of Augustine and Calvin and Luther, but, Luther, yep. but I got to be honest with you, I didn't learn very much about my church mothers. And yep. I, I run a ministry now called the Marcella Project, and it's named after one of our church mothers, of which most people have, have no idea who she is. They have no idea what she's done, which by the way, for those of you who don't know, she helped St. Jerome translate the scriptures into Latin. And whenever Jerome left town, he would say to people, hey, if you need any um, scriptural instruction, go seek out Marcella, a woman. Right. And again, you know, this idea that we don't talk about this long history of women in, in um, church leadership. I, I, I have to share a story. I, I was the first female preacher at our church, evangelical church. It was 40 years old, and I was the first female. And when, my, my, when our elders were trying to decide um, whether it was okay for a woman to preach from the pulpit underneath the authority of the elders, 
which I stopped them and said, hey, um, I would think that anybody who comes and stands on the stage is underneath the authority of the elders. It's not a, it's not a gender issue. <laughs> it doesn't matter if that right. person is a female or a male, they should be underneath the authority right. of the elder, right? So that's not a gender issue. But that's what they were trying to figure out. And they um, asked in a church historian, professor um, at a seminary who was a church historian, and, and the professor said, well, we don't have a, a lot of documentation about women leaders in the early church. And I sat there in this room with all male elders and waited <laughs> for somebody to challenge that statement, and nobody said a thing, and I thought, okay. And so like, I, I got oh, all red, my and I'm, my stomach got a pit in it, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm about to challenge this amazing professor in church history but I said excuse me right right nerve nerve and I said excuse me isn't it true though that we do have some documentation particularly before Constantine made Christianity public right don't we have we do have pre-300 AD and he said well yeah that's true and then afterwards he came up to me and he asked me where did you get that information? So I shared him some of the things I tried. And I didn't have the courage back then because I was just getting my voice and my feet underneath these issues. But I, I should have said to him, you're a church historian. Why aren't you telling the whole truth? Why are yep. you holding that information back, right? So um, Isaac Newton says, if I had seen for, if I have, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. In other words, the reason he can see things more is because he stood on people who had learned things before him that he gleaned from. And unfortunately, women have not had that privilege. Instead, um, as Greta Lerner states, women, Christian women, have been denied knowledge of their history. And thus, each woman had to argue as though no woman before her had ever thought or written Women had to use their energy to reinvent the wheel over and over again, generation after generation. And I have found that to be true in my own life. There just yeah. weren't many models, role models to see how to do this. So right. you, po- you point out that the, the reality is, since we don't know our church history about women, then we have popular theologians like John Piper who say it's unequivocally not okay and never has been okay for women to teach men. And we believe it because, as you say, we lack historical context in which to evaluate Piper's claims. So you do such exactly a good right. job yeah. of giving us example after example in your book of our church mothers. So tell our audience about two of them. And I think I asked you two specific ones, but tell us about those two amazing women. Sure. So, and I will say that this is something that's not only Gerda Lerner, but so many women's historians have commented on this, that every time they try to like explain or insert into women's history, they have to, they have to rebuild the past because we keep forgetting it over and over again. And the reason we forget it is because it is not put into our church. It's not put into the notes in our Bible studies and in our Bibles. It's not put into the curriculum in our Sunday schools. It's not put into our seminary textbooks. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's because of this, women simply are not taught about the rich heritage of women preaching, teaching and leading and resisting Um, attempts to try to silence them throughout history. So a good example of that, one of the examples that you asked me about was a woman named Christine de Pizan. And Christine de Pizan is, um, she's 
late 14th, early 15th century. And she's a remarkable woman for all sorts of reasons, um, one of which is because she is perhaps is one of she's one of the first professional writers that we know who was a woman who earned her living and supported her family based upon her writings that she sold. Um, she was an Italian woman who moved to the court, to a, the French court with her father when she was a child and ended up marrying um, someone at the court of Charles V. And she had all this tragedy in her life and her father lost his job and her husband and her father both died. And she was essentially penniless with a family to raise. So she started writing, and people started paying her to write books. Uh, and in the early 15th century, she got involved in a debate over one of the most popular medieval texts. Um, it was called The Romance of the Rose, The Story of the Rose. Uh, essentially, it's a trashy romance novel. Um, it's about <laughs> a man questing. Yeah, I mean, that's really what it was, a man questing after um, a woman. And it had two versions of it. There was the first version, which wasn't so bad, but then it got redone, remade into a second version. And the second version of it was pretty nasty towards women. Um, not only did it portray them as being this sort of conquest that then is captured and taken, you know, this plucking of the rose, and you can just use your imagination, mm -hmm. but then it also talks about the way it describes women. Um, it often describes them as, you know, yes, you can get married, but the rest of your life you're going to be miserable because women are so unfaithful and are shrewish and, um, you know, they'll just – they'll make your life absolutely miserable. So all of these horrible things that it said about women. And Christine de Pizan was just appalled. And she began writing a series of letters that actually created, you know, if she'd been on Twitter, it would have created a Twitter debate, you know, a big word <laughs> that everybody would have been talking about, um, you know, like Beth Moore. And uh -huh. that's what she essentially has created. And so she starts writing a series of letters where she talks about what's wrong with the romance of the rose. And she says, look, I mean, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing her, she says, ideas matter. And you are teaching false things about women that causes men to treat women badly. And so the way that she countered this is she wrote her own story. And it's called the book of the city of ladies. And she wrote a history countering what was said about women in the Romance of the Rose, Story of the Rose, and she said, look, throughout history, there is a long line of noble and significant women who have not only been significant in the Christian faith, but also have been significant in history. And she said, and we have to remember these women, and women need to know about these women. So some of the same problems we have today are actually some of the problem, you know, in the evangelical church with women not knowing their history. This was the same thing that yeah. Christine de Pizan faced in the 15th century. And she said, you know, she countered it by saying, look, we've got to change what women know and what men know about the history of women, because that's how we can change the treatment of women, um, which is something that I am in full agreement with Christine de Pizan about. Me too, um, me too. So she's one of, yeah, so she's one of the women. Um, another one is a more modern woman, and this is one that I suspect nobody else has talked about um, because I didn't even know about her 
until really just a few years ago. And when I was exploring and looking around, because I knew you know, Waco, where I live, has a very long Baptist tradition. Um, some of the earliest Baptist churches in Texas are around the Waco area. And so I began investigating some of these early churches and looking to see um, if, you know, what women's roles were in these churches. And what I found is that women were preaching yes, they um, were. in Baptist churches in Waco in the early 20th century. And one of these women was a woman named Miss Lewis Ball, and we we don't know that much about her. Um, I haven't had time to go and investigate more than what the sources at Baylor. There's we have a library here called the Texas Collection, um, which is an archive of all sorts of wonderful Baptist history. So I mostly used it and found the notes of her at this church. Um, in Waco, outside of Waco, that called this woman to be their um, evangelist for their, for essentially for their, um, you know, they had, at this time, we had these big tent meetings where once a year, the revival meetings, and she was called as their, their main revival preacher for three years. Um, and the reason that they wrote down, you know, it's all these male elders that are making the decision, these male deacons, and the reason they wanted to call her is because they said she was a good preacher who won souls to Jesus. And so, you know, not even nothing about her being a woman, nothing about, oh, is it okay to have a woman come and preach here? None of that conversation was going on. They wanted her because she was a good preacher and a good soul winning evangelist. And so they called her and she preached their revival message for him. And so it's just, and this was in the 1930s. And so it's just, you know, even this, I, I can understand why evangelical women don't know about Christine de Pizan. A lot of people, we forget our medieval history. We sure, never learn sure. it. 1936 is not that long ago. Right. And right. almost nobody in Waco or the Baptist churches that I was, people I were talking, nobody knew the story of Miss Lewis Ball. Nobody knew this had happened. Right. Um, so, we so quickly forgot it. And, and we choose to, that, right? It gets yeah. buried by choice. Because yeah. if, you're, if you're thinking and what you're trying to promote is women can absolutely never, ever, and never have taught right. men, well, then you have to hide that. That can't be out there as, well, that isn't true. Actually, in your own denomination, here's Miss Bell. <laughs> That's exactly right. We, yeah, don't want or, them, yeah. we don't want them known. We also don't want ordinary women like Miss Lewis Ball known. You know, the, the the people that they try to put out are often the extreme examples who something went really badly in their lives to say, oh, look, you know, when a woman preaches, this awful thing happens. Um, but we don't want to point out all of the you know, hundreds of ordinary women who are serving and leading in their churches because God has called them to. Yep. That's exactly right. I want to pause here just for a minute and remind um, you listeners uh, to subscribe. Subscribe to this podcast, Jackie Always Unplugged. One of the powerful things that Beth says in her book, and I, I love this statement, is to change the lives of women, we first have to change the ideas about women. And one of the ways that you can help us do that is by subscribing or ask your friend to subscribe or post about this podcast on your social media platform. Help us to reshape the view of women. So I want to, Beth, let's talk about the Protestant Reformation. There's some really good things that yeah. came out of the Protestant Reformation, but there's some things that really kind of put women in bondage from that movement. Um, you say that women have always been wives and mothers, but it wasn't until the Protestant Reformation that being a wife and a mother became the ideological touchstone for the holiness for women. 
So right. what do you mean by that? Yeah. So um, it is true throughout history, women have always been wives and mothers. That's totally understandable. Not always at the same time, um, but they always have been wives and mothers. They've also always worked. I mean, the consistency right. of women working is a part of history, too. Yep. Really. Yep. Um, but what happened at the Reformation is that if we, if you look at the medieval world, when we think about the women who become preachers, teachers, and leaders, they actually mostly are not the married women uh, because the medieval world was patriarchal. It's not a golden age for women. It did believe that women's bodies were something was corrupt about women's bodies. Women's bodies were flawed. This is an idea they inherited from the ancient world. Um, and so because women's bodies were flawed, they were not actually good teachers and leaders. And so that was the reason they disqualified them. However, if women could you know, move past their bodies, um, if women could overcome their female weakness, then they could be preachers, teachers, and leaders. So the way you did this was by forsaking marriage and family and mm-hmm. sex and being one of these virgins called women, um, or at least being a holy woman, um, and then you could gain authority as a preacher, teacher, and leader. So in the medieval world, there was a loophole, there was a possibility, and many women stepped into this role and became these significant religious figures like Hildegard of Bingen, um, who went on preaching tours and preached to male, major male uh, ecclesiastical figures in the medieval church. Um, with the Reformation, however, this loophole closed. And the reason it closed is because the Reformation revived sort of this uh, the emphasis on the marriage, the emphasis on husband and wife um, became the ideal Christian state. And so in order, if you were godly, then you were married. Married. And you were married. And women, so women's highest calling was now not to serve God as, you know, a woman religious. A woman's highest calling was now to serve God as a married wife, which meant legally she was under the authority of her husband. And then with the Reformation, there began to be an emphasis that while she's legally under the authority of her husband, she's also spiritually under his authority. Mm -hmm. And there is no longer a loophole for women because women who are not married are outside of this sort of perfect plan. So even though churches have always tried to do a good job with single women, they're always an afterthought. Um, because they don't fit the ideal for evangelicals today yeah. is to be married. It's a married state. And this stems from these changes that happened after the Reformation. Um, so, And it also, as I said, sort of closed this loophole for women to be recognized as preachers, teachers, and leaders. Yeah. And I have tons of women friends who are single, and they would attest to the fact that even though the church keeps trying to fit them in, the truth is we idealize. We you know, it's an marriage is an idol in in the Protestant right. Reformation, and and in in single people are on the outside. I'm sorry, no matter how hard we try, uh, we don't have a space or a place yes. for them. Even the Genesis story, right, where where we say that the creation story is about marriage, well, then actually single people don't have a creation story, right? <laughs> you, you understand yeah. how detrimental that is. If it's about marriage. Then what do we do with the single? But they don't have a they don't have the beginning story, which is crazy if you think about it. 
Okay, we're gonna move on because yeah. I want to get to I want to get to I want to get to translations because most of us yes. listening do not understand that there has been a gender war over translations. Right. So can you share a little bit about the gender wars that have gone on, and then we're gonna move into how has translations impacted women, like removed us um, from the Bible, so to speak. Right. So um, really. For our modern, for our modern Bible translations that we have, the gender roles over translation picked up speed after the late 1970s. And in the late 1970s, there was what we call a conservative resurgence. And I'll be real fast with this, but essentially, um, there was a there was a concerted effort to take over churches and seminaries, especially in Baptist circles, and revert to a more conservative theology, um, more what they called traditional and the plain and simple reading of the Bible. And with this came a concern about biblical translations. Um, for a long time, one of the Bible translations that had been being used was the Revised Standard Version. Uh, for many people, this was seen as being too, although it's really not a liberal version of the Bible, but some people rejected some of the translations within it. And so there began to be this concern to let, we need to restore, we need to you know go back to the importance of Bible translations, because as evangelicals, the crux of our faith is the Bible which means people are supposed to be reading the Bible for themselves and interpreting it for themselves, which means it's really important what biblical text they're reading. So this can be, I think, probably the best way to talk about this, and I, this is what I do in the book, is to talk about what happened with um, the NIV in the 90s. And in the, in the 90s, the new international version, the NIV, decided to revise itself by going back, making some of the language within the Bible, especially the New Testament, um, in which women and men are referred to in the text as, you know, the, the pronouns and the nouns that were actually gender inclusive in the Greek, but were translated in modern Bibles as being all masculine, as being brothers instead of brothers and sisters. So they decided to go back and change some of that and rectify it. And this, they, this was published as what they, the today's New International Version. Well, as soon as some of these more conservative folk who had been part of the conservative resurgence, um, this is also just a few years after the founding of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood in the late 80s, um, they were appalled at this and began to argue that essentially a liberal feminist agenda had moved into biblical text um, to try to change the meaning of God's word. Um, and they were so effective. They essentially had a smear campaign against gender-inclusive Bibles, and it, it worked. It was in all of their magazines, publications, mm -hmm. you know, everything was going on, this sort of smear campaign. And out of this smear campaign, they decided to do another version of the Bible, too, that followed what they said was this um, traditional and genuine Bible translation, and it became the English Standard Version. And the English Standard Version is the one that, as I said, if you take Junia in Romans 16, she becomes Junius. Um, we also see in many other, like if you take 1 Timothy 3, if you read through 1 Timothy 3, one of the things that's the qualifications for being a bishop, an overseer, an elder, you know, people use different words there, but it uses all of these male pronouns. It says, he, if anyone aspires, he should do this, and he should be this, and his wife should be like this, and his children should be like this. Well, what's interesting about that, if you actually go back to the Greek, none of those masculine pronouns are actually there. 
they are all um, they're all you know gender neutral pronouns or can be read as gender neutral pronouns. Right, so, and so the decision so, so, to make them male, masculine, was a intentional decision to make it look like leaders can only be men. Male, right. And this was a, yeah. talk about mind-blowing thing that happened to me. I, I first heard that from Dr. Philip Payne, who worked as a professor mm-hmm. underneath. You know, I think he was at Cambridge, so, and then he he was at Fuller his, for a while, yeah. If, if I can interject, yeah. his son was one of um, the first PhD students that we had in our history program at Baylor. So I always, I think very fondly of Philip Payne he's, because I know his son, Brendan Payne. <laughs> yeah, he's wonderful. And I got an opportunity to teach with him here in Dallas, or Dallas. Yeah. And I had him come in and I had him talk to a, our a group about this idea of different things. And when he said, you know, the, those pronouns are not masculine, they're, they're neutral. Right. If you could have seen the audience, it was like, what? Cause that changes how you yep. read it. Because it doesn't feel male any, anymore, right? So completely changes it. So this is just yeah. a specific way in which we see translation. Talk about a little bit about the word marriage and wife in the Bible and the impact it had on women. Right. So what's funny is that section I actually wasn't I didn't have it included in my original draft. And one of my graduate students was working with me and helping me edit as I was doing working on the book last year, and she said she said Beth. At the translation, you have to include Naomi Tadmore. And Naomi Tadmore is a scholar um, who wrote this great book called The Social Universe of the English Bible. And one of the things that she really emphasized well within this book um, was showing how the KJV, the um, King James Version of the Bible, actually began to translate words that weren't that didn't have that same meaning in the Hebrew world into ways that made it socially acceptable for early modern English people, like marriage. Marriage was what all respectable people did in England in the early modern period. It was something very much encouraged by the church. The problem is, is that the early modern English ideal of marriage and even our modern understanding of marriage aren't really, don't really exist in the Hebrew world. Okay, so now I'm not saying that God doesn't have a plan for man and woman to come together. I'm not you know, talking about that at all. I'm just simply talking about this concept of marriage and how marriage is structured. And in fact, if you read through the Old Testament, one of the things you will notice is that there's a lot of women who really don't get married. They are, they're raped. They are simply taken into somebody's tent. And all of a sudden, they start being called wives. Right. They're not necessarily wives. A lot of these women are concubines. Some of these women are um, maybe not even, don't even become respectable women at all. You know, if you think about Tamar, um, you know, Tamar is just raped. Right. And so, I mean, and, but we, they're called, many of these women, Tamar is not actually, but many of these women are called wives in the, in these early modern English translations. And in fact, even the word marriage itself begins to be inserted. And a good example of this is in the creation narrative um, where it talks about, you know, God created man and woman, male and female, he created them. And then actually um, at the end of that, he says it's three times. It's the same word. It's male and female, male and female, male and female. But what we get is male and female, male and female, husband and wife. Right. And it clearly is turning that into a, you know, a, for this reason, a husband will leave his family and cleave to his wife. Where it really says a man will leave his family and cleave to his, a woman. A woman. Is what it actually says. Yeah. But it was turned into 
marriage here. And her argument is that this is because of the early modern English world, that this was seen as more acceptable. Um, And so this is major if you actually think about it, because it normalized early modern English ideas about family life into a biblical text that these standards weren't necessarily there. And yeah. this is mind-blowing. A lot of people get upset about this. <laughs> but it's, but, but it's um, true. The, the history is true. It's true. Yeah, it's I true. tell people all the time when I teach um, about, I don't usually teach on marriage, actually. I don't teach on marriage. I don't teach on parenting. <laughs> yeah. um, I really don't think that the Bible uh, tells us much about how to, I, I, you know, so I, I will say to people, well, what do you mean by a biblical marriage? Like, which, right. which marriage in the Bible do you want, since you're calling it a biblical marriage? Let's find one there. Like, like right. which one do you want to model? You want David's marriage? Right. You want Abraham, who gave <laughs> his wife over to Pharaoh? I mean, you know, and then we've even got Mary and Joseph, who's a pretty good example, but she got pregnant out of wedlock. You know, like, yeah. wh- well, which, you know, like, so, so we really, and- when we say biblical m- Marriage, what on earth are we talking about? Because right. if you understand historical marriage in the Bible, like none of us want that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's again, it's this emphasis that in order to be godly, we have to be in right. these marriages that look a certain way. Right. And, and that's actually very hard because even most marriages in modern churches, they don't look like that. Of course they do Marriage don't. is hard. Yeah. yeah, marriage is hard. And by glazing, I think by creating this false, understanding of this sort of perfect idea of marriage, it makes it even harder for many of our evangelical marriages. And this is why a lot of stuff gets hidden in the church, because we don't, because if we admit that we have problems in our marriage, then that means we're saying we don't have a godly marriage. We're not as godly as we're supposed to be. Well, and also there's just not a, there's not a one set for all role model of what marriage looks like either, right? right? Like there's there's, people are different, how they come together, their history that they bring into marriages are different. And so all marriages are going to look very, very different. I keep thinking, you know, like if we taught um, the one another's, uh, in the scripture about, you know, honor one another, love one another, wait on one another, like those things that actually are called amongst brothers and sisters in the church. It's actually right. Not yeah. necessarily just for marriage, but those would be good relational, um, uh, uh, principles that might help marriage, but no, but they're actually never taught as a biblical model for marriage. They're taught as like, Hey, this is how we do well as a Christian community. And it can also yep. work in a marriage, maybe. So anyway, like I said, I, I never teach on marriage for this very reason. But yes. <laughs> so you and it can I get you into trouble. Yeah, you can you can get into some trouble. I just want to correct yep. people when they tell me they, that that's not a biblical marriage. I'm like, what are you talking about? Which one? Which one in the Bible? Right. Stop that's calling a very it that. Good question Stop to calling ask. it that. Yeah. So anyway, you and I both are working to reshape the view of women, um, to help women of faith see this idea that we've been taught and bought about biblical womanhood Mm -hmm. and manhood, that in fact, it's not biblical. And so let me ask you this final question. Like, what does it matter? What does it matter that we're giving our lives trying to like change how people, what people know is actually what we're doing. We're trying to change ideas and thinking. What's, what's it really matter? What's at stake? What's at stake for women? Yeah, no, I think, you know, to answer that, I'm going to go back to Christine de Pizan. And this is one of the things that I think is so brilliant about what she did is that um, in one of her, and I talk about this in the book, in one of her letters that she wrote, you know, there's this whole sort of letter war 
And in one of the letters that she wrote, she gave an example of a husband who read the Romance of the Rose and saw all of the nasty things that it said about women and then would go and actually use that and beat his wife, saying that she was, you know, because she was all of these bad things, um, that she deserved to be beaten. And Christine de Pizan used that. She said, look, this poor woman is worth more than this. That these ideas that are being transmitted in this text, they're not just funny. They're not just something for us to read. You know, these matter, and they affect how men treat women. And so, I mean, if you, you can just look at the world in which we live. I mean, evangelicals are reeling from all of the sex abuse scandals that keep coming mm-hmm. out. And we're like, how could this be happening in the church? How could pastors be treating, you know, how could this be happening? And the reason is, is because from the time that they are teenage boys, they begin to hear that be- simply because of their bodies, because of their sex, that they have more authority and more and can be leaders, whereas the, the young girls around them cannot which tells them that there's something about them that makes them better than those girls. And this is something that they carry with them. And, you know, and it's one of the reasons because I I have a son too, and it just terrifies me, you know, thinking I don't want him to ever think this because the impact that it has when you believe that somebody simply because of the way they are created are less than you, then it causes us to treat them as less than us. That's right. It allows us to dehumanize someone. It dehumanizes people. And this is why do we have all these horrible sex abuse scandals coming out? Because we have taught men that women are less. Yeah. Yeah. And I would even say, even outside of sexual exploitation, domestic violence, which is huge and rampant, even in the church. um, And I know because I've been a pastor to women for almost 30 years. um, So I've sat with my share. Um, I even think about all the innovation, art creation, uh, scientific discoveries, um, new leadership styles, the solving of poverty, like all the things that society could have brought to bear on it from the full flourishing of women and men, but of women. What are we missing as a society because we're actually communicating to women, hold back, be less, shrink, be littler, right? Like we're, we're missing yep. even, even on that side, like take away the sexual exploitation, domestic violence, which I don't want to do because it's there and it's loud, but like exactly. the full flourishing of, of each image bearer isn't being brought to bear on society and the benefits that they can bring to society, right? We're missing all right. of that. So there's so much yeah. at stake here, so much at stake. Okay. At the end of no, the book, I think, go ahead. Yeah. No, that's okay. Go on. I was going to say at the end of the book, you say um, that historically one of the greatest problems for women is that we do not remember our past. And I think your book does a great job of helping us not only remember, but actually know first. We have to know it before we can remember it. And then you said we need to work together to change our future. And so I want to say that one of the ways we can quote unquote work together to bring change is by supporting women like Beth. And if you've listened to my podcast, you've Thank heard you. me say it over. Hey, we have got to support women theologians, women authors, women in ministry. We've got to buy her book is what I'm asking the audience to do. Engage in the content. Give it some thought. Give it to a friend. That's how we do this together. So, Beth, tell them where they yeah. can get your new book. Sure. They can actually get it almost anywhere now. 
Um, so it's in all of the major Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you know, any of those online distributors. Uh, you can also get it straight from the Baker um, website. And in fact, right now, Baker, they're selling it for a really good price and they have free shipping. So it's a really great place to get it. You can also get it Kindle. Um, oh, and it's audiobook. I'm excited about Woo-hoo. that because I'm an audiobook fan. Yep. So it's also audiobook. So you can get it at, uh, you know, almost anywhere that you look. Um, I like independent bookstores. So my favorite independent bookstore in uh, my hometown, Waco, is Fabled. And so it's carrying it. Um, so I imagine you can also get it at some of your independent bookstores too. Excellent. And if our listeners want to follow you, where do they find you on yeah. social media? They can find me under Beth Allison Barr anywhere. I go by that name. Um, so just, you know, Beth Allison with two L's, Barr with two R's. And you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me. uh, That's my website, too. So you can find it almost anywhere. Excellent. Okay. And again, I want to remind you listeners, it's crucial to support doing women doing the work. And one of the ways you can do that for me is by sharing this podcast or subscribing to Jackie Always Unplugged or get a friend to subscribe, post it on your social media. So I want to thank you, Beth, for giving us your time and your mind. May God use your book to reshape the view of women. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me on. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.